all God's people said. Amen. We continue our journey through uh, the Beatitudes, the most famous part probably of Jesus' most famous sermon on the Mount. I'm reading from the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. We will read together the first six verses when Jesus saw the crowds. He went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. For a quarter of a century or so now, travel for Stephanie and me in our great state of California has been largely, almost without exception, north and south, up and down, the 101, possibly the 5. The last two weeks, however, we've had the relative exhilaration of East Coast automotive travel. Winding from Ohio through Pennsylvania and West Virginia, District of Columbia, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia. I hope you are as impressed as I am just by listing that. And at every state line, at every state boundary, at every border, there was a rest stop and a welcome center and welcoming signs and desks and employees to tout the distinctives and the relative benefits and wonders of those particular states. We are looking together for a few weeks at the Beatitudes, and in our first exploration of them, we discovered that Jesus was deliberately describing citizens of a kind of a state, marks and characteristics of people who were part of a kingdom, God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. So the Beatitudes are marks and characteristics of resonance of the kingdom of God. To be a citizen of God's kingdom means you belong to him. And in our first look, which was three weeks ago now, we made the observation that what we have here is not what perhaps first appears to our mind's eye and heart of a concatenation, of a collection, of a motley assemblage of different kinds of people, mournful and poor and hungering. Rather, we have eight characteristics of the same kind of person, a mark of the citizen of the kingdom. So here is a description of people who are on the way or entering or who are already in God's kingdom. Beatitudes. We've looked at the first two. In order to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, you have to be poor in spirit, 
and you have to be mournful. You have to take that first step on the 12 steps to realize I'm powerless in the face of my addictions. I'm powerless before it. I need something outside of myself. I am helpless. I need a Savior. No one enters the kingdom of God without declaring their poverty of spirit. And secondly, we saw that this isn't just a state we find ourselves in, but one we're responsible for. It's something we have an attitude about. It's something we mourn. We've seen the problem, as G.K. Chesterton put it, and the problem is us. That this helplessness we find ourselves in, we've chosen, we've been in rebellion, we are sinners, we are poor in spirit, and we are mournful. No one is a citizen of the kingdom of God without those two characteristics. So much for review. This morning we go on to two others. To be meek or humble. And to be hungry. Once you see that your problem is beyond you, once you've confessed poverty of spirit, once you've realized your implication in it, so commentators suggest, I think correctly, this invites for us a certain humility, a certain meekness. Charles Schultz, in his great cartoon strip, Peanuts, has his central character who is perhaps the, the classical example of one's stereotypical understanding of the characteristic of meekness. To be meek is to be a kind of doormat. So in one of his strips, he has Charlie Brown stand up, presumably before his classroom, and say, Today I'm reporting on glaciers. He goes on, Glaciers are large rivers of ice. They move slowly, but sometimes they move one foot forward, and then they may retreat three steps backward. Which comes to think of it reminds me pretty much of myself. <laughs> now we think of a meek person as someone who can be pushed around or walked over or sneered at or insulted or mishandled without anticipating any response back, and nobody respects that. But biblically, meekness has nothing at all to do with weakness. It is always characterized by strength. Jesus said that he was meek. And lowly of heart. John Stott suggested this characteristic of meekness coming as it does between mourning and hungering means really having a true and accurate picture of yourself. He writes this, namely this bracketing of mourning and hungering, makes a person gentle, humble, sensitive patient in dealing with others. The meekness that Jesus describes here is the opposite of pride. It is the outcome, it is the result of poverty of spirit. In another of Charles Schultz's cartoons, he has Charlie Brown pondering, you know, I'm tired of my imperfections. I wonder what it would be like to be really a perfect person. In the next uh, frame, Lucy smiles and says, Take it from me, it feels great. (laughs) 
Now, maybe not all of us are that arrogant, but C.S. Lewis gives a revised image of what it is to be a humble person, what it is to be meek. He writes, true humility is not an abject groveling. It's not a self-despising spirit. It is a right estimate of ourselves as God sees us. The humble person allows one's understanding of oneself and others, our strengths and weaknesses, to rise out of our relationship with God. The meek person is the first to declare their dependence on God. Pride isn't something God forbids because he's offended at it. Or that humility is something he demands as due to his own dignity as if God was himself proud. He's not the least bit worried about his own dignity. The point is he wants you to know him. He wants to give you himself. In the Greek, the word for meekness means something like being molded, being shaped. The meek are those who are being molded by God for his purposes, his kingdom, his desires. It is, as probably some of you have read, also translated strength under control, a muscular horse which is bridled, a powerful dog which is as trained, obedient to his master. Martin Luther translated meekness as sweet-spirited. The French, and I love this, translated debonair. Blessed are the debonair. Blessed are the Cary Grants and the Harrison Fords and the Fred Astaire's in white tie and tails. Blessed is the gentle person who is aware of his strength but has it under control and is not easily provoked. God molded. God shaped. God-trained, God-tempered, God-disciplined. In Measure for Measure, Shakespeare writes, "'Tis an excellent thing for a person to have the strength of a giant, but it is a terrible thing for him to use it like a giant." So Christian meekness doesn't focus so primarily on self-control as it does on God control, God's shaping, God's guidance, God's leading. Out of the God-controlled life comes a life which is centered and stable and trustworthy. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We need to look twice at that. Aren't the powerful, aren't the arrogant, aren't those that walk over people, those who inherit the earth? But the earth is inherited by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Mastery over the earth comes by his love and his victory, not by a kind of coercion. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The next mark of a citizen of the kingdom is hunger. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. There's a kind of insistence here. Jesus is saying the mark of the kingdom is not for those who are vaguely interested, who are dabbling. Neither is the kingdom to delight the curious or to amuse people or to uh, entertain us or to charm us. His 
demand was absolute. Seek first the kingdom of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and might. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. We know what it is to hunger and thirst. As I was as I was writing these very words, I hadn't eaten for a while, and so it was, it was uh, affecting my concentration. And I could, I decided, return to my concentration as long as I knew when I would be eating. So I called up Stephanie, when, when are we going to eat? It doesn't matter. It can be two or three. I just need to fix that in my mind. Because, because we, there's a deep drive to hunger. Actually, it's probably hard to have it in our culture the way some have it. At Don and Ann Comfort's wedding, I sat beside their family friend, friend of many of these church, the founder of the Asante Ministries. And he shared with me again his testimony, but in greater detail. And he said for the thir- first 13 years of his life, possibly being raised as he was in a refugee camp from Rwanda and Uganda, and possibly the most desolate, impoverished place in the world, certainly one of them. He said there was not a day in his life, by the way, he's now soon to have a PhD, there was not a day in his life for the first 13 years of his life, not one day, in which he did not wake up wondering how or where or if or when he would eat that day. That's behind this image. Blessed are those who are hunger and thirst have this deep, insistent drive for righteousness. Now let's break that down. We've already broken down the hungering. Righteousness means to be right, to be straight, to be received, to be in the right place. We hunger to be centered. We hunger to be right with those we love and by the one who has created us. We hunger to be straight and true. Uh, Last Sunday, I heard a well-written, terrible sermon. It was well-delivered, but I hated the central thesis. He called it the Great Debate. And he said throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, there's a dialogue, there's a debate between the justice of God and the love of God. And on the cross, we see which side wins. It's God's love. It's God's mercy. I thought that was nonsense. That God's justice and his righteousness and his love are not a debate. They're not in dialogue. They are together. God, in a wonderful essay, P.T. Forsyth writes, The Holy Father He says, God cannot be loving if he isn't holy. And he can't be holy unless he is loving. God's justice and God's holiness belong together. His righteousness and his love are the same thing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for this this justice, whatever the cost, to be made manifest. But it is something we don't have. The text is clear. This... If, if something is before us and we have it and we hunger and thirst for it, we eat it and we drink it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for something that is outside of them, something that they need, something that they reach out for. It is God's justice and God's rightness, but we are covered 
with the righteousness of Christ. This is the heart of the gospel. This is at the very center of the Bible. God's righteousness fills us. John Stott, in one of his books, said, For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. That's Christianity in one sentence. God's verdict on us is, You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased because you have been covered with the graciousness of Christ. You have to be filled with that righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for this righteousness. And to be filled by it. That means it becomes the center of your existence. It defines who you are. You have confidence to live out of it. It fills you. Becky Pifford, in one of her books, uh, Hope Has Reasons. She's a public uh, speaker, a Christian speaker, and also a writer. And she tells of a young lady that comes up to her after... uh, one of her talks and says, I have to talk to you. And she confesses a sin that she has done. It was not illegal, but it was a, a horrible act, so horrible. I'm not going to share that part of the story because we would focus on that and it's only secondarily important. But it had tormented her as well it should have. And uh, she was a Christian, a biblical Christian, and uh, She came to Becky and said, I've confessed this thing a thousand times over and over and over, and I'm just obsessed with it. I'm depressed. It's running me into the ground. I'm emotionally wrecked. I don't know what to do. How could God possibly forgive me? And Peppard said she swallowed hard and prayed, and then she gave her this answer. It's a wonderful answer. She said, my friend, Jesus Christ had to die for all of our sins. Sense of the religious and the non-religious, sense of the Nazis and their victims, sense of moral people and immoral people, we are all responsible for the death of the only innocent man who ever lived. The sin that caused you to destroy this life was pride. And it was pride that destroyed Jesus Christ's life 2,000 years ago. As Luther said, we all carry about in our pockets his very nails. You were already a murderer before this other thing happened, and it was all totally paid for long ago. And the woman said, I came here thinking I was confessing to you the worst thing that I could possibly imagine, and you have shared with me that I had already committed something even worse. And if I can be, and if I have been forgiven for that, you're right. I can be forgiven for anything. And she was freed. And so can you be. The secret and climax of any good, any great story or book or film is a reversal. Over the past three weeks with my sister and Her family, we watched the Thomas Crown Affair again on DVD. And if you see that, it's a film full of plot twists and turns, and I was reminded that every great film, every great book, every great story takes the hero or the heroine into a desperate situation in which all they see is a dead end. 
And then the trap door opens. And there's a reversal of circumstances. And there's an upside-down experience. And there's a release, and there's a rescue, and there's a freedom. That's what the gospel invites you and me to. The cross looks like a dead end. But on the cross, Jesus took everything that is ours on himself. It is the great exchange. And though the cross looks like a dead end at the cross, we have a beginning which is the start of everything. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, who has this deep drive, not just for justice, but also for the righteousness which we do not have in ourselves, but we have outside of ourselves in Christ. And if we accept that, our lives will be filled, centered, freed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Living and holy God, we... Thank you for this roadmap as to how we can move towards, how we can enter, how we can hold on to, how we can grasp your grace. May we be denizens and citizens of your kingdom, that our lives might be built on the solid rock, and that we might also be sources of hope and help to your wounded world. For it is in Jesus' name we pray.